Please turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. As I hope you know, Exodus 20 is one of the two places in the Bible where the Ten Commandments are located, known as the Decalogue, ten words. We know them as the Ten Commandments. Elsewhere referred to as God's covenant. We're looking at the Tenth Commandment as we have uh, gone through the third section of the Heidelberg Catechism, which is primarily devoted to uh, an explanation of the Ten Commandments as a rule of gratitude, how we are to thank God for delivering us from sin and misery through faith alone in Christ alone. Um, And uh, the subject of prayer is the most important part of the thankfulness that God requires from us. So uh, we'll look at the Heidelberg Catechism in a moment. Um, As a matter of fact, I'm sorry, we should do that now. If you turn in the back of the hymnal, to page 893, you'll find there the positive requirement of the Ten Commandment. Tenth Commandment, you shall not covet. Remember that though nine of the Ten Commandments are negative in form as found in Scripture, they're not only a prohibition but a requirement with every commandment. Also remember that the Ten Commandments are but summary statements of God's will. It does not exhaust God's will. Uh, but rather summarizes in succinct form God's will. So, for example, the seventh commandment is you shall not commit adultery, but it it encompasses all sexual sin that the Bible talks about. It's just a summary statement. So we're dealing with the tenth commandment, you shall not covet. And question 113 asks, what is God's will for you in the tenth commandment? And you answer... Very good. Now, if you would look at Exodus chapter 20 and the 10th commandment, it's verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or female servant or his his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Five points to the sermon this morning. First of all, covetousness defined. What actually is covetousness? It's by no means commonly and rightly understood. Secondly, uh, covetousness explained. Thirdly, covetousness exemplified. Fourthly, covetousness applied. And fifthly, covetousness cured. So defined, explained, exemplified, applied, and cured. So what is covetousness? What exactly is God prohibiting here when he says you shall not covet? In order to obey, you must understand. In order to understand, we must define. All right? So first thing is defined, covetousness defined. Is it desire that's being prohibited here? Many think so. Is it desire that's being prohibited here? All right? In the history of the church... That's certainly been an understanding, one understanding. Many, even today, still think that what's being prohibited is desire. 
Is it wrong to desire, for example, a marriage partner if you're single um, so as to fulfill sexual desire, which is God-given, right? Is it wrong to want a better paying job to fulfill financial desire? Many Christians think that ambition is coveting or a form of coveting, that it's wrong to be ambitious, that it's wrong to desire a, a better paying job. Uh, for example. Is it wrong to want a nicer house in a nicer location? Maybe move from Yorktown Heights to the Bronx? Is desire desirous or disastrous? What is being prohibited here? Is it just a matter of degree? We shouldn't desire too much, but if we desire a little, it's okay. You see? It's not so clear, is it, when you think about it? What actually is God prohibiting here? All right? To further confuse this situation, in some places in the Bible, God actually commands us to covet. We're not going to look at it, but if you look at the uh, passage in Corinthians dealing with spiritual gifts, God actually says to covet the greater gifts. Well, now what's going on? <laughs> Tenth commandment is you shall not covet. Paul says you should covet. Confusing, right? Many of us talk to other Christians about, I would covet your prayers. Is that wrong? To covet someone's prayers? Is desire desirous, or is it disastrous? Well, desire in and of itself is not sinful. All right? Desire in and of itself is not sinful. To deny desire is not Christianity. To deny desire is Buddhism or Stoicism, if you're philosophical rather than religious. All right? To deny desire is not... Uh, desire in and of itself is not sinful. Stoicism, if you've not studied philosophy, is a philosophy of a life without desire. <clears throat> your house may burn down and your family perish, but a Stoic says, I'm unaffected. I'm unconcerned. I'm Stoic with respect to these things. Buddhism, Buddhism views a body with its desires as detrimental to spiritual enlightenment. And so, all of life is spent escaping desire. Many Christians live life the same way, which is more Buddhist than Christian. <clears throat> Today, many mistakenly think that holiness is equal to being without desire. That is not holiness according to the Bible, all right? <clears throat> A wrong view of God and of God's creation leads to this. Paul tells us very clearly, well, let's start in Genesis, all right? God saw all that he created and said that it was good. So God placed his seal of approval on everything material, everything that he had created. Paul goes on picking up on Genesis and says, everything that God has created is good and he's given us to us freely to enjoy. We should enjoy all the things that God has created for us as a good, kind, 
beneficent and gracious God. All right? Secondly, the disposition is sinful or holy according to the object on which it is fixed. So the disposition is sinful upon, based upon the object upon which it is fixed. In Habakkuk, and we won't look there, but you might want to make a note and look it up later. In Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 8, it says, Woe to him that covets an evil covetousness. Woe to him that covets an evil covetousness. All right? So the disposition is sinful or holy according to the object on which it is fixed. And therefore, it's not a matter of degree. I can cover a little bit, that's okay. I cover a lot, that's sinful, right? But whether something that is desired is forbidden or not. To set one's heart upon and long for those things that are forbidden is what is being prohibited in the Tenth Commandment. Even the attempt or desire for gain, all right, uh, by uh, your hand or coercion or deceit is wrong, okay? That which belongs to my neighbor, the Tenth Commandment says, by unrighteous means. So it's unlawful desires that are being addressed here. So desire can be desirous or it can be disastrous depending on what's desired. Coveting, all right? The Catechism uh, says that. It says, not even the slightest desire or thought contrary to any one of God's commandments should ever arise in our hearts. So you see, it's the object upon which the desire is set that determines whether it's desirous or disastrous. Okay, let's move on. So covetousness defined and explained, all right? In the 10th commandment, the searchlight of God's law moves from actions to attitudes. It's very interesting, all right? From motions to motives. From forbidden deeds to forbidden desires, all right? The 10th commandment goes right to where no other human being can see. And that is your heart and my heart. Other commandments, let's be clear, also deal with the heart. Just recently in previous expositions from the catechism, we dealt with the 6th commandment and hatred as a manifestation of murder. The 7th commandment and lust as a manifestation of adultery, right? The ninth commandment with respect to truth-telling and falsity, right? So that also deals with matters of the heart, okay? But this commandment deals with the heart explicitly so. It deals with sins of the heart primarily, all right? Look at Romans chapter 7, which is probably the clearest uh, passage on this. Romans chapter 7, if you're familiar with it, you know that Paul is undergoing a struggle here, a struggle about which much ink has been spilled and which difference of opinion I will not delve into at the moment. Suffice it to say that for what I am about to say, I believe that Paul is talking as a Christian, and I think that most people can I, that are Christians can identify with the struggle that Paul is going through 
which is an experiential verification of what actually is being taught in the text, all right? That it's about a believer, okay? Anyway, Romans 7, verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? Many Christians think that today, too. By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. The law in Paul, all right, provoked the spirit of rebellion and sin. And that's what the law does, all right? Oftentimes, the law, because it penetrates to the thoughts and intents of one's heart, all right, and its prohibitions irritate, aggravate, elucidate the sinfulness of the human heart because we don't want to be told what to do. I was in discussion this week with another pastor. We were discussing a, uh, a mutual pastoral concern, and the mutual pastoral concern had expressed in no uncertain terms to any number of people that he didn't want people telling him what to do. And therefore, he didn't want to meet with anybody in authority. Huh. Yeah, this is why just say no programs, right, when it comes to drug, uh, fighting drugs, uh, are so futile, all right? Just say no arouses sin all the more, right? Now, let me, let me bring this down to a more practical level. How many times have you been in the park, not a New York City park, but, but a nice park with nice lawns, right? And, and the sign says, don't walk on the grass. What's the first thing you're going to do? Is go find a nice patch of grass to, to settle in on, right? Nah, don't walk on the grass. Nah, don't tell me. I want to lie down on a nice strip of green grass. Maybe you can find one in Central Park. They have a conservancy. All right, anyway. You see the point. Look at verses 9 and 10. Paul says, I was once alive apart from the law. He's talking about 10th commandment. But when the commandment came... You shall not covet. Sin came alive. And I died. The very commandment that promised life. It's an interesting statement. The law promised life. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. Look at verse 12. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Verse 11, sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. The problem wasn't the law, Paul says. The problem was my heart, my sin, right? What shook Paul was that the 10th commandment made him realize that the law, which he was relying on for his being made right with God, right? The law, as a Pharisee, he believed was a ladder which could be climbed to obtain righteousness with God. The law which he thought saved him as a Jew, the law condemned him because of the sinfulness of his heart which was exposed by the Tenth Commandment. So what Paul learned when God gave him this understanding of the Tenth Commandment is that 
he needed the grace of God to be right with God. He couldn't climb the law as a ladder of merit. He couldn't work his way to God. He couldn't earn God's favor by keeping any or all of the 613 commandments in the Torah. No, he needed grace because only grace could cure a sinful heart. And my friends, only grace can cure your heart. And only grace can cure my heart. Because over and over and over again, we realize that not only do we fall short of God's glory by far, but that we can never attain it in, in and of ourselves by our own efforts. The Tenth Commandment realized, made Paul realize the condition of his heart needed to be changed. Paul outwardly was fine. Remember in Philippians how he says, I was a Jew, a Benjamite. He said, according to the law, I was perfect. But thou shalt not covet. It was like a lightning bolt to his heart that exposed his sin, showed him his need of grace and a savior, and made him beg for mercy. That's, that's all our conditions by nature. By nature, children of wrath. By nature, descendants of Adam. By nature, sinful. Not just because we commit sin, but sinful by nature at birth, David says in Psalm 51. We need radical surgery. We don't need you, let's be personal here, you don't need to turn over a new leaf. You don't need to make New Year's resolutions. You need a savior. You need a new heart. You need what only God can do and what only God can give. I need what only God can do and what only God can give. And that's what God does when one looks to Jesus Christ. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Naked come to thee for dress. Only God can do that. Well, let's look at a few examples, all right? The Bible's rife, not only with um, propositional statements and prohibitions, but also with examples which teach us about covetousness. Now, we don't have time to look at all these verses, so just maybe follow with me. If you're not a good student of the Bible and you don't know the references, you might want to write it down and look it up later so that you can be a good Berean and verify that, in fact, this is what the Scripture teaches, all right? Not rely just on what I say. But, of course, you have David, right, who coveted another man's wife in 2 Samuel 11. We'll look at that more in a moment, right? You have Ahab, who wanted Naboth's vineyard and was determined to get it because he set his heart on getting that vineyard, although he had to do it by stealing it, right? You have Achan. Remember Achan in the book of Joshua? He coveted some of the goods, some of the plunder, all right, of the conquest, and he hid it for himself only to be exposed and have him and his whole family condemned and judged because of his covetous heart. And then, of course, Judas. Oh, Judas. Look at Matthew 26. I want you to look at this specifically. Matthew chapter 26. Popularly, 
Most, if not all of us, know that Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. But that's not the act of covetousness which is uh, highlighted in the Bible. Rather, in Matthew chapter 26, we read something very interesting. Matthew 26, verse 14 and 15. Then one of the twelve whose name was Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests. Up, oh, I'm wrong. I got these backwards. Sorry. That's the 30 pieces of silver. Look at John 12. My bad. John 12. John 12, verse 6. I just looked at this before coming here this morning, but I got him transposed. Sorry. So Mary anoints Jesus, right? And they're complaining, why wasn't this sold for 300 denarii given to the poor? Uh, Judas said, right? And why did he say that? Verse 6. Not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So his covetousness is highlighted not by betraying Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Of course, that was a covetous act. But because he was a thief and he used to dip into the money bag. He said, oh, two for you, one for me. Two for you, one for me. His covetous heart was put into action. So, exemplified by David, Ahab, Achan, Judas. How does this apply to you and to me? Well, I think all of us are familiar with the application of covetousness socially. We're bombarded with it almost daily, all right? It's using the power of government and the power of law to defraud and harm another. That's what happened with um, Ahab and Naboth's vineyard. He forfeited, all right, uh, the vineyard was forfeited to the government, to the crown. It was legally stolen, but it was stolen, using the power of the government and the law to defraud and to harm, all right? Covetousness is the root of all social evil. Think about it. What I'm referring to in terms of being bombarded with it on almost a daily basis, all right, is class envy that is played on by politicians to pit the haves against the have-nots or the have-nots against the haves. How much do you hear about the rich? And we ought to tax the rich. And we ought to tax corporations. And the little guys doesn't, is not get, uh, the big guys get away with everything. The little guys left with nothing. Class envy. Class envy. The politics of covetousness. Social welfare programs are fraud. If you study this, and I, won't, I don't have time to, to demonstrate, so you will have to take my word, although you could study it and prove me wrong. 95% of every dollar is spent only, let me put it positive, or negative, positive, negative, not sure. Only five cents of every dollar on social welfare programs goes to actually help someone, one person. 95% is spent on bureaucracy. That's why Proverbs says, the mercy of the wicked is cruel, is cruel. Some of us work or have worked with government social programs. 
Would you rather deal with a human being who has compassion or, or a social worker? Nothing said against social workers present or past. A covetous seizure of our neighbor's possessions by evil, though sometimes legal, means. Using the law to defraud or harm anything of our neighbors is covetousness in action. 1 Kings 21, Mark 10, verse 19. We won't look up all these passages. You can write them down. Micah chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Bibles replete with examples. But what about personally? Let's not just be abstract and deal with out there. What about you? What about me? Covetous is the root of all social evil because once the heart sins against the Tenth Commandment, all other commands are broken also. Think, for example, of David. We said David coveted Bathsheba, right? He set his desire on his neighbor's wife, and he wanted to have her. But what happened? He wound up breaking the Seventh Commandment, you shall not commit adultery. He wound up breaking the Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal by stealing somebody else's wife. He wound up breaking... Um, the sixth commandment, because he had to send Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, to his death in order to get Bathsheba and cover up her pregnancy by himself, right? And he broke the fifth commandment. The very chapter begins by saying it was the time when, uh, in Israel, when kings went off to war. And where's King? Where's King David? He's not off at war leading the troops. He's up on the rooftop checking out the babe who's sunbathing on the next door. His covetousness broke all the commandments. Think of Ahab. His false witness against Naboth in order to fulfill his covetous desire to steal his vineyard violated the ninth commandment. His judicial but unjust murder was a violation of the sixth commandment. And when he stole his field, he broke the eighth commandment. Covetousness leads to breaking all these commandments. Judas, the same thing. His covetousness. He used to steal from the common purse, Eighth Commandment. He betrayed Jesus over to murder, right? Sixth Commandment. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. It's an instructive lesson for you and for me. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 10. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Let's make sure we get this clear, right? Money is not the root of all kinds of evil, all right? Why? Because sin does not reside in things, right? Sin doesn't reside in alcohol, it doesn't reside in tobacco, it doesn't reside in money. Money is not the root of all evil. But notice what the text says. Love of money. Oh, it's my heart. It's your heart, right? But notice what Paul goes on to say. Uh, It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many many pangs, right? Paul says, don't make it your ambition to be rich. Love of money. Is it wrong to desire increased financial security, a raise? No, but don't make that, don't put your heart set 
on money. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. When assessing the spiritual significance, you're inevitably taken very deep in uh, of this commandment of covetousness. You're inevitably taken very deep into the interior of your souls. And that's where battles, spiritual battles, as we've been studying, are won or lost on the battlefield of our soul, on the battleground of your heart. That's why Colossians chapter 3 says covetousness is idolatry. Because the things that are coveted become your God controlling your life. So what's the cure as we come to a conclusion this morning for a covetous heart? <sighs> the cure, of course, as we've noted previously, is that only God can change your heart and only God can change my heart. And thank God that God is in the business of changing hearts, of turning lives around, changing hearts, making hearts that are dead in transgression and sin alive through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came, lived, died, rose again in order that sinners might be made right with God and in order that hearts might be changed and in order that they might be right and set on desiring the things of the Lord. And ultimately, that's the cure, is to put God first, to love God and put him above everything else. You cannot satisfy yourself with yourself. God, God himself must be the one. You must have something spiritual and infinite to satisfy the craving of your heart and God himself <clears throat> in order for that infinite desire to be satisfied. Look, if you would, at just one passage. Look at Psalm 73, verse 25. Psalm 73, verse 25. I have a ton of passages here, but we don't have time. Psalm 73, verse 25. Here's a heart that has been made new by grace. Here's a heart that has looked to the Lord for rescue from their sinful condition separated from God. Here is a heart that has been made new. Here is a heart that has been brought to God, has been broken by his word, has been brought to God by the spirit. And here's its expression, verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. What is it that Asaph is expressing here? He's expressing what Paul, in the New Testament, learned, and that's contentment. The arousing sinful desires of a fallen heart have been quenched by grace, have been quelled by God's Spirit, have been transformed by the blood of Christ, such that now, Asaph, like Paul, has learned contentment in God. Earth has nothing I desire besides you. 
you might be tempted to think, well, you know, it's a little preacher's exaggeration then. You might be tempted to say, well, you know, Asaph was maybe a super spiritual Christian. Asaph was a sinner like you and like me. And you and I need to learn that lesson as well. Whom have I in heaven but you? Nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Just one little helpful clue as we conclude. Contentment doesn't come with the snap of a finger. You don't reach Asaph's content conclusion by some mystical, spiritual path that leads to this as an end product. Paul, when he says, speaks about this, he says, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. Whether in plenty, I don't have to be like Jay Rockefeller. How much is enough? Just a little bit more. Richest man in the world was not content. I can be content in poverty, Paul says. I don't have to envy the rich. I don't have to participate in the politics of class envy. I can be content because I've learned that God, my Father in heaven, has placed me, has brought me right to this particular place in time. And just like Adam and Eve in the garden, all that he has given me is for my good and for my salvation. It's a lesson that you and I should learn as well as the cure for covetousness. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us. We are dependent upon your word and spirit to guide us, to guard us, to cure us, and to draw us constantly to yourself. We ask it in Jesus, the Savior's name. Amen and amen.